Hi. 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 Hello. I'm curious about. I'm curious about. I'm curious about. I'm curious about building open, authentic, loving relationship. I'm curious about jealousy. I'm curious about polyamory. Does it just mean that you're fucking all the time? How can I tell my parents that my partner is already married? I'm curious about... How do you know when you're too busy to have another relationship? I'm curious about dominant and subordinate relationships. I'm curious about sexual health. How can relationships relationships evolve with people as they grow and change? Welcome to the Curious Folks Podcast. For those challenging the status quo in love, sex, and relationships. My name is Effie Blue. And I'm Jacqueline Nisla. And today we're talking about evolutionary psychology and challenging the idea that we have complete free will when choosing lovers, partners, and relationship structures. So how much does evolutionary wiring impact the types of relationships we seek? And what does the behavior of our relatives from a million years ago have to do with our relationship choices today? Well, our guide in helping us sort out which decisions are rooted in our source code and where we exert our individual interest is Dr. Adar Eisenbrook. Adar is an evolutionary psychologist who has a PhD in psychological and brain science from the University of California. He completed his postdoctoral fellowship at Harvard University and has been an associate researcher at Future Laboratories, a visiting assistant professor at SUNY Purchase, and is currently assistant professor at Mount St. Mary College in New York. His research centers around cooperation, friendship, and behavioral endocrinology. And before the pandemic put us all in lockdown, he did a talk on the chemistry of chemistry, how hormones affect romance and relationships. Evolutionary psychology is probably my number one area of interest when it comes to relationships. I think it is fascinating. When we think about evolution, we think of Darwin and mostly biological evolution, right? If you Google evolution and take a look at the images, you get the super familiar meme of the outline of the monkey into the human, which represents over 6 million year period. But our psychology has evolved equally. This is to say a lot and not that much at the same time. I can't wait to delve into this conversation with Adar, an evolutionary psychologist, about how the way we think about relationships today is impacted by our ancestors. And we start with asking, what exactly is evolutionary psychology? We hope you enjoy the interview. It is a type of psychology, a branch of psychology, sort of like developmental psychology or social psychology, except it's a little bit different because it's not a list of topics. If you look at, you know, what developmental psychologists study or what social psychologists study, there's kind of a list of topics that like is included in each of those domains of psychology. Evolutionary psychology is not actually a topic area or a list of topic areas. It's an approach that can be used to study any topic within psychology. So it's really just fundamentally trying to understand human behavior, uh, the design of the human mind from an evolutionary point of view, kind of looking at the ways that humans think and humans behave and say, okay, well, in an evolutionary sense, why is it like that? Why do we have those preferences or those particular behaviors or thought patterns? Like, you know, how do those things evolve? What's their function? And we can kind of do it in the, the opposite direction of, well, we can take what we know about evolutionary psychology. So the problems our ancestors had to solve, the type of worlds that they lived in, 
and think, okay, well, given that evolutionary history that we know about, mm. what would we predict the human mind is like? Uh, and we can then test those predictions. So it's really using evolution to understand the human mind and human behavior better, but that can be applied to any topic. So there's evolutionary social psychology, evolutionary developmental psychology, evolutionary cognitive psychology, because it's just mm. applying that evolutionary approach to any of those topics. One of the things I'm interested in is that there is real tension, I think, right now in society around the distinction of us being autonomous, free beings, unique, can create our own paths in life. And there's real knowledge that we are products of our upbringing, of our culture, of our parents, of our history, of our lineage, of our DNA. And so I'm wondering in the work that you've been doing and kind of seeing this tension, if there's been anything that has actually surprised you in this work and thought like, oh, all right, well, I guess, I guess I didn't create that. I guess that came from. Right. That, that's interesting. I and mean, that's a really, really profound question. I mean, I wouldn't say that there's anything that has surprised me. I think I came into doing this work very much like as a materialist, like I kind of, uh, I believe in a material universe. I think that applies to the human mind and human brain as well. Like we are, we are machines. I believe in sort of like a mechanistic understanding of the human mind. So in that sense, I think I don't have the same discomfort that you have with like, oh my gosh, can I be predicted mechanistically? I have come into this work thinking like, yeah, totally. Like I can be predicted mechanistically in the same way that like, so can a dog or a fish or a squirrel. I think to some degree, what maybe has surprised me is when I started doing this work, I had a little concern and I sort of heard a concern from other people of like, but isn't this going to ruin it? Like if you know... If you know how the magic trick works, if you know why relationships function the way they do, if you know why you like the things that you like, won't that kind of ruin the experience of it? Because you'll feel like, mm. oh, I don't really love this person. It's just this like chemical cascade in my brain. Yeah. And so I don't know if it was a concern, but I was kind of curious to see like what happens mm to the magic tricks when you study the magic. And I'm, I'm pleased to report, at least in my own personal experience, like it doesn't ruin it at all. It's, it's interesting how you can totally, you know, you can both be a scientist about things like social relationships and emotions and social preferences, mm -hmm. but then just also live in those relationships <laughs> yeah. and preferences and emotions. And it just totally works. And it doesn't, you know, to some degree, it makes no difference at all. There's some areas where I think maybe it a little bit deepens my appreciation of those things because I have this feeling of like, wow, like the machinery is really good. Yes, this mm -hmm. is produced by biological and cognitive machinery. And you know what? The machinery works. Like it's amazing. <laughs> it is really, really good. Like I understand that I'm, you know, I've evolved to be mm -hmm. tricked into loving my child and it's implemented it by these chemicals in my yeah. brain. But guess what? It really like, works. It feels so real. <laughs> it feel, it work, like the machine, I feel like there's a sense of like, does becoming a magician ruin magic tricks for you? Yeah. I think probably not. I think if you're a magician and then you watch another great mm -hmm. magician perform, mm -hmm. it's not ruined. It's the opposite. It's even better. Mm -hmm. You're just like, oh my gosh, they did that so well. Like yeah. the craftsmanship is terrific. Yeah. And I feel that way about all these evolved structures where it's like, sure, like 
I'm being duped by my genes into loving my offspring, but boy, are they doing a good job. <laughs> <laughs> and I do love that child with all my being. And know? I love the child. It works perfectly. Yeah, yes. exactly. Yeah, totally. I mean, I, I like when I hear you talk about that, it is music to my ears because this is, this is kind of how I, like that's how I look at uh, all of this. You know, we tend to specialize in more in love, sex and relationship things. And I especially really focus on a relationship side of things. And, the way that you think of the, the human the human uh, as a machine is similar to the way that I think about it. And when we talked before, we sort of, sh- I shared with this idea that I think of it as like our source code, that the source code that we all have that is evolved over 6 million years, you know, that is still running. More, much more. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and it's still running and it's still very effective and, and we can, you know, we still get the right new pieces of software, but the source code is the source code and it's been, you know, it's been around for a lo- very long time. Um, and I'm curious to how much, how much does evolutionary wiring that, that source code, if you will, impact the types of relationships that we seek? I think it impacts it profoundly. Like, for example, okay, humans generally, not 100% of people, but like generally speaking, we are motivated to form romantic relationships, right? Romantic attachments, adults at least. And that's not true of every species, right? Like turtles don't do that. Uh, squirrels don't do that. Dogs don't do that. Uh, a lot of birds don't do that. You know, like that is not inevitable Mm -hmm. in any kind of like physical sense. There's no law of the universe that says every organism has to have romantic relationships. But for humans, it is totally common and normal and, and, and typical. And there's some variate variation in what those attachments look like and how people navigate them, which is what you guys explore so often. But just the general premise of like romance is a thing, romantic relationships are a thing. That is a function of human evolution, right? We have evolved to crave those relationships, to find it intuitive to enter those relationships. There are certain features of the relationships that are very, very common and recurrent that are there because of our evolution, because of sort of the source code as, as you're talking about it. Like the feeling of possessiveness that often exists within romantic mm. relationships. Again, that's not a law of the universe, right? Dogs don't do that. Squirrels don't do that. Fish don't do that. But humans do. And like you guys often talk about, there are different ways of handling those feelings of possessiveness. There are different ways of managing them. You know, there's some variation there. But just this basic thing that is kind of a like broad strokes truism of human relationships, which is we have romantic attachments and very often feelings of possessiveness are part of those romantic attachments. That's because of how we evolved. Mm. Like it didn't come from anywhere else. That's because of how we evolved. So I think the the impact on the types of relationships we seek, romantic relationships, friendships, alliances, ongoing family relationships, like these sort of intergenerational relationships that are not just for infants, right? Like it, they continue for decades and decades and decades. And that's kind of feels natural to us, right? All of those things are very much the result of our having evolved as hunter-gatherers who live in these kind of semi-nomadic bands, 
who have incredibly, incredibly helpless young who stay helpless for an incredibly, incredibly long time. Mm -hmm. And all of those features of our evolutionary history have produced these relationship templates and relationship motivations in our minds Mm -hmm. that now we are living out, we're acting out. So I think the, the impact of our evolutionary history on our kind of social minds and social lives is profound. But I do just want to qualify that in one sense. That doesn't mean that there aren't also contemporary influences like the effect of experiences you have had growing up Mm. or experiences you've Mm. had in your prior relationships or the things you've learned from other people or the things you've learned from your culture. Evolution is not mutually exclusive with those other influences. Those other things are very, very much real. And in fact, we might be able to understand in part why they have the effect that they have from an evolutionary perspective, right? Maybe culture has the effect that it has because we have evolved to pay attention to our culture. We have evolved to you know, learn from what other people are doing and maybe to some degree copy them. So yeah, I, I don't think we can possibly understand our social minds and social lives and social worlds without thinking about evolution. But it's not a question of crowding out other explanations. I think it's really a matter of enriching those other explanations as well. Mm. Everything that you said, I'm like, wow, there's like so many different pathways of my, <laughs> my brain. My in brain, my mind. I know, my brain is just like <laughs> split into a million yeah. questions of like, what about this? What about this? What about this? Yeah. And it's kind of circular, right? The, the more I sort of follow the logic as you were talking of how our evolution affects our everyday today to how our everyday is affected mm-hmm. by, our, mm-hmm. by our evolution and things like Economics, for example, um, has a huge impact in the way that we, we I think, remain in relationships and, and the sort of power dynamics and systemic dynamics. All that kind of st- stuff affects our relationships, but the way that it affects the relationships, the way we react to it is also sort of c- circles back into evolutionary psychology. So it's this like circles that go around circles. So as you were talking, I was just like following these logic trails and I was like, whoa, it's like one big circle that is made of other circles, you know? That's making me think about in connection to relationships that it feels like sometimes the answer is attraction or hormones, right? right? And like, that's the thing. And I'm wondering if you can kind of dissect that a little bit too. Like what, what is it that makes us attracted to people or that, that, you know, the the hormones that impact romance and relationships, those sound like, oh, that's the answer now. And we're done. We close the book. And I'm wondering if you can now reopen that book and explain a little bit more for us. Yeah, exactly. Right. That's a great that's a that's a great question because oh, why do you want to be friends with that person or why do you want to be, you know, in a romantic relationship with that person? And it seems like the answer could just be like, well, cuz I like them, like cuz they're attractive, they're attractive and I just like them and I want to. And like subjectively that just feels like the entire answer. But but of course, we can peel back the curtain a little bit and see, you know, the mechanism producing that attraction, the mechanism producing that liking, and kind of see what the traits are a little bit. So for, let's say, physical attractiveness, we know a lot now about kind of what the traits are that make someone physically attractive. We We can best understand this by understanding it from an evolutionary perspective, right? We evolved to prefer these particular traits in different types of partners. So those traits are things like symmetry, like the symmetry of your face, the symmetry of your body. So humans 
generally speaking, have what's called bilateral symmetry, which is that like the left side and the right side are more or less the same. But of course, in each person, they are not perfectly the same. There are slight asymmetries in pretty much everything on your body. However, the degree of asymmetry reveals uh, what scientists call developmental stability. The idea being that what produces the asymmetries is these little diseases, infections, any kind of like glitches in the sort of the expression of that genetic program that produces those asymmetries. So when you look at the degree to which someone is symmetrical or asymmetrical, you're kind of getting like a little window into the past. You're getting a window into their development and you can assess to what degree they experience those developmental instabilities. And of course, what allows someone to resist the developmental instabilities, like fighting off the pathogen or fighting off the disease instead of being affected by it, would be the quality of their immune system, which you know, to some degree now is revealing genetic quality. So we prefer symmetrical people. We experience that feeling. We experience that preference of looking at someone symmetrical. We experience it as just attraction, right? Like they're hot or I can't put my finger on why, but I just like want to talk to them. I want to be friends with them. Like they look cool. They look good because over our evolutionary history, that symmetry revealed a person's value as a social partner, as a mate, and also just as like a cooperative partner and an ally and a friend. So that's why we now have that preference. And we can do a similar analysis for things like hormone markers. So when you're looking at someone's face, to some degree, you're looking at, or not looking at their hormone levels, but you can implicitly estimate their hormone levels, right? You're looking at the effects that their hormone levels had on them as they were growing. And so, okay, why would people prefer, let's say, testosterone men and estrogeny women? Well, for estrogen, it, it reveals fertility. So there's a pretty straightforward account of why people would have evolved to prefer highly fertile women as mates. For men, testosterone predicts things like dominance and resource control. So if those are traits that were valuable to women seeking a mate over evolutionary history, or also to other men seeking allies or cooperative partners over evolutionary history, then that explains why traits that reveal testosterone would be attractive now. So we can do this kind of evolutionary analysis uh, for all the traits that make people attractive. And I think it really helps us understand it. So just to give you like the speed run through of the other things that are found attractive, averageness, physical averageness, like having facial features that are sort of close to the population average. So not having a super unusual nose or super unusual mouth, stuff like that, being kind of like close to species typical in your features is generally found attractive. Cues of health, just like looking healthy. You don't have lesions on your skin. You don't have open rashes on your skin. That's generally found attractive. If we look at bodies for men's bodies, kind of moderate muscularity is tend to be found most attractive. So definitely some mus muscularity, but there is such a thing, at least from a mate choice perspective, there is such a thing as too muscular. And if you think about muscularity as revealing testosterone, this kind of makes sense because there is such a thing as too much testosterone, right? Like testosterone can be useful if it promotes social dominance and resource control. 
But there is such a thing as too much dominance, right? There, you know, someone can become volatile or dangerous or a bad partner if they're too dominant. If you think about uh, women's bodies and, and what makes uh, them attractive for men, things like a low waist to hip ratio. This is, this is psychologists speak for an hourglass figure, but psychologists call it a low waist to hip ratio. So this reveals, it's actually really interesting. It reveals deposits of these very, very special fats that women store in their hips and, and glutes and thighs. Uh, it's these long chain fatty acids. So like, you know, omega threes and stuff like that, that are really important for fetal and infant brain development. Those particular fats are important for building brains over evolutionary time. Women who had, you know, ample stores of those fats were able to donate more of those fats to their children over the course of gestation and, and uh, nursing. So presumably their children got smarter. And that's how that, you know, preference came to be. I'm wondering if there's research around how that impacts folks who are attracted to the same sex where heterosexual procreation is not front of mind, or may, right. maybe it is behind the scenes again, when you pull back the curtain, but I'm wondering if there's any research around the distinction there. Yeah, that's such a good question. Right. So, uh, so everything I've just been discussing sort of assumes, you know, heterosexuality is kind of like the background against which, you know, these preferences would evolve. And to my knowledge, you know, there might be other people who are more expert in this. To my knowledge, understanding just homosexuality in general and, and the preferences that gay people have or, or bi people or pan people is a big open question. I, I think there's a real mm -hmm. mystery there of like, do gay men, for example, do gay men have women's preferences? They're just showing up in a man or do gay men have men's preferences? They're just being applied to men instead of applied to women or something in the middle, or some combination thereof. And it, I'm sure there are individual differences there as well. Yeah, that's just a really mm -hmm. good question. I have no idea. I think there's like a lot that we could understand and don't understand about that. Mm -hmm. My guess is that a lot, of, a lot of this is solving for survival of the species, right? It's about the offspring. And the I think with same-sex couples, same-sex attraction, you're taking out that piece, the, the natural the natural offspring. I think when you take that out, then it becomes this like, but then then why, right? It's, it's almost like you have to step back even further to understand the evolution of um, homosexuality, how it fits into the big picture. I don't think it's like, I don't think you can apply the same science and the reasoning and the problem solving to homosexual couples, to heterosexual couples would be my guess. Yeah. So, so I think I disagree with you of like, well, you can't apply the same evolutionary reasoning because gay couples aren't reproducing. So all of these explanations that are sort of like about reproduction don't make sense. I actually want to push back on that a little bit. I think there's a sense in which gay people's preferences are actually really spectacular evidence of the fact that these preferences are evolved because Let's, let's take preferences that reveal someone's fertility. You could, so like men's preferences about women, for example, mm -hmm. if, that, if that reveals fertility, you could kind of try to make an argument that those preferences are not there because they evolved. They're just there because people want to reproduce. Somehow people found out 
what predicts a person's ability to reproduce. So now they're attracted to those traits that will facilitate reproduction. To be clear, mm-hmm. I don't think this is a good argument. It's a, it's a losing argument, but you could make that argument, right? However, now with gay couples, or, or actually similarly straight couples that just don't want to have kids and are going to spend their whole lives using contraception to not have kids, we're taking away the kind of reproductive logic. So you might think then, well, if evolution has nothing to do with it, and we take away the reproductive logic, then there's no reason for gay couples or non-reproducing straight couples to prefer those traits that were reproductively valuable to our ancestors, right? There's no reason then for people who are attracted to women to prefer women who look fertile or who look like they have uh, you know, those special long-chain fatty acids to donate to their offspring, mm-hmm. right? It's just useless at that point. And yet, those traits are still attractive, right? Those preferences are mm-hmm. still there. So I think, in fact, we can look at gay people's preferences or non-reproducing straight people's preferences and notice, hey, they still kind of like a lot of the same stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They're still looking for symmetry and muscularity and low uh, waist-hip ratio. Well, why would that be? I think the best explanation is because those preferences have just evolved. That's just like part of the human, like you like to call it, Mm -hmm. Effie, part of the human source code, right? Like we come factory loaded with those preferences. Mm -hmm. Even if you're not going to use those preferences for reproducing, they're still there. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. My question then goes to how do we then explain things like the ever-changing contemporary beauty standards, right? So if you look at, for example, let's look at Vogue over the decades. And what you see is an ever-changing beauty standards for women, right? So you have the 50s, you have the hourglass figures, then you, then women become very skinny, and then women become very athletic. We Now we're trying to move away from the beauty standards, and we try to have diversity in that. So there isn't just a one image. So I'm, I'm curious to if the evolution, if our evolution have given us these preferences that is sort of built in, then where do we, how do we come up with the contemporary beauty standards? How, does, how is that decided? And how does that affect in the way, what, in, in the way we see what is beautiful? It's, your, your question's really, really terrific. I think the answer to the question is a little bit to push back on mm-hmm. the premise. So I think that obviously there are some cultural differences in you know criteria of attractiveness to some degree fashions change over time right like are we into skinny jeans or are we into bell bottoms but i actually think if you zoom out a little bit there's an incredible amount of constancy and uniformity mm. in what's actually found attractive so yes the weight of Vogue models and Playboy Playmates has changed a little bit. And some of those fashions that we've talked about has changed a little bit. But actually, there's also a ton that isn't changing. It's all symmetrical Mm -hmm. people who Mm -hmm. look really healthy, Mm -hmm. who are reproductive age, but young within that reproductive career, right? It's Mm -hmm. still just like women in their like early 20s. We're still, you know, we're not getting lots of 75 year olds Mm -hmm. on the cover of Vogue or on the cover of Playboy. There was actually some really interesting research looking at weight uh, or like body shape, body type preferences, looking at Playboy Playmates as kind of uh, an interesting proxy for men's preferences. And it's true that the weight of Playboy Playmates has 
fluctuated over time, mostly gone down, but their waist to hip ratio hasn't changed. It's still this 0.7 waist to hip ratio. So even though the weight's changing, the body shape is really constant. So I kind of think because we're swimming in this culture, it's really easy for us to look at these fashions and go, oh my God, everything changes so much. It's all so variable. But I think if you zoom out and look at humans the way mm-hmm. like alien researchers would look at humans if they were hovering over earth they'd be like yeah. they all look the same like what they like is all the same yeah. all these magazine <laughs> covers basically have the same person on them like we yeah. get it like symmetrical young women over and over and over you know like yeah. and there's some evidence as well suggesting the universality of these preferences so yeah. there's been research looking at attractiveness judgments across cultures, like do people in different cultures, including non-Western cultures, including non-capitalistic cultures, do they actually agree on who's attractive? And it turns out the answer is yes. People Mm. cross-culturally agree on who's attractive and who isn't. Mm. There's been really cool work looking at infants and newborns and showing that they distinguish between faces that adults find more attractive and less attractive. So newborns Mm -hmm. will actually look longer at faces that humans consider attractive faces compared to less attractive faces. Mm -hmm. And presumably the newborns haven't been reading a lot of Vogue. So (laughs) this preference is coming from somewhere. We kind of, you know, it seems like evolution is like the only real plausible explanation. So it turns out Tinder is a great tool. Right, right, right. Yeah, right. <laughs> Tinder yeah. got it right. Yeah, right. Go. They got the it conclusion right. is <laughs> Tinder got it right. <laughs> right. Take really symmetrical looking photos for your Tinder profile. Um, note, Definitely. <laughs> note the body shape. Right. But what I love about this conversation is I think it highlights what we were talking about in the beginning, our resistance to believing that things are evolutionary and pre-described, right? Because you were like, this is what people find attractive. I'm like, but what about gay people? And then (laughs) Effie is like, but what about our fashion changes? And what about, and you're like, still though, but still, (laughs) but still, like you keep, and I, I, I think that that really highlights that push and pull. And one of the things I'm curious about is the distinction between nature, nurture, neither, both, you know, I, it sounds like in what you're describing, it is about both, that it is our nature that evolves within our nurture and that our, our preferences at the time may be more nurture culture related, but really still rooted in our nature. So it, it just, it feels like it's all tied together. I'm wondering your thoughts on that. So I'm actually really happy uh, that you asked about nature versus nurture because I love to talk about it, not because I think it's a good question, but because I think it's a terrible question that, that, <laughs> needs, that needs to die now. It's a stupid question. So I'm really happy if I can sort of drive a stake into the heart of the nature versus nurture debate. Because here's what I think. Here's what I think happens. People talk about nature versus nurture. And implicit in the question is this idea that those are separate things. Those are different and separate effects. So we can somehow tell the difference between the effect of nature and the effect of nurture, and those effects operate independently. So then, you know, we bring up this nature versus nurture debate, and people think, well, the kind of like smart answer, the the educated answer is both. Of course, both. Of course, We've evolved certain things, and of course, we learn certain things. But I still don't like the both answer because it retains this assumption that those things are separate in the first place. And you can just like 
layer them on top of each other like peanut butter on top of jelly. But the problem is that nature and nurture do not operate independently. You cannot have the effect of one without the effect of the other. They only operate in interaction with mm-hmm. each other. Mm-hmm. If you pulled out the environment, the evolved mechanisms would do nothing whatsoever. And if you pulled out the evolved mechanisms, the environment would do nothing whatsoever. So, you know, to me, like nature versus nurture is a little bit like what makes your car go? The engine or the gasoline? It's like it's both. (laughs) But saying both kind of like overlooks the fact that they're working together. It's one system. So I think we kind of need to totally bury the nature versus nurture question and start focusing on like, how do nature and nurture interact? Like, what are the evolved mechanisms, the nature that interacts in particular ways with particular aspects of the environment, the nurture to produce whatever outcomes we're interested in? Jackie, thank you for asking (laughs) that stupid question. Exactly, right, exactly. (laughs) <laughs> it's good i think it's it, it's such an ongoing i i love that we debunk like the question right it's like right. we're no we're no more gonna we're not anymore gonna ask that question if i could make one difference in the world yes. through through this podcast it's yes. that i want people to just reject the question as ill oh, I, I love it, love it. I love it. Love. that's great Okay, so let me, um, with all this information, especially about, you know, evolution and the attractiveness, I want to kind of pull us towards more towards uh, the relationship side of things, right? So one of the conversations we continue to have on this podcast and discussions is a relationship structure, right? What, what we advocate here is that there are many different relationship structures. And, you know, we talk a lot about, especially my work is really around this idea of relationship by design, right? That we should actively and dynamically and consciously design our relationships in a way that we as the individuals in the relationship can thrive, right? And which always leaves the door opens to, open to monogamy versus non-monogamy, you know, whichever works for you. And then if it is, you know, non-monogamy, what, what is it going to look like? Like, because non-monogamy can come in so many different shapes and forms. You can also argue that monogamy can come in, in, in different um, shapes and sizes. So it's just about figuring out what are the conditions in which you're going to thrive and how do those conditions translate into a relationship structure that will work for you, right? That you can sustain and, and thrive in. So that's the way kind of we approach it. I am curious if from an evolutionary psychology point of view, is there an optimum relationship structure is monogamy as kind of hardwired into us is, is a big part of our source code as as it seems is non-monogamy absolutely ludicrous or is there room for both do you have any insight into that wow uh those are tough questions i mean so i think it's pretty clear that non-monogamy is not ludicrous right because mm-hmm. people do it and it makes some people happy some people do it really successfully right so there's nothing ludicrous about that However, it also seems pretty evident that monogamy is a little bit of a default relationship structure for Mm -hmm. humans. And this makes perfect sense if you look at our offspring, right? Like children need so much parenting for so long that doing it alone is just not going to be as easy or likely to be as successful as doing it as a team. So this idea of like the way that humans reproduce is by forming parenting teams that kind of like consistently co-parent with each other makes an enormous amount of sense. 
So we need to find some way to kind of like negotiate that tension, that gray area, you know, the tension between this idea of like pair bonding. I'm not saying necessarily perfect monogamy, but some kind of like commitment pair bonded relationship that is probably to some degree like exclusive and possessive, right? Like another person is a resource and it makes sense that people would want to kind of like monopolize that resource within a relationship. So that idea of like these possessive bonded relationships seems to be in in many respects like a default for us. At the same time, clearly we can do other stuff and some people want to do other stuff. So like how do we negotiate that tension? I think to some degree the way to do it is by just understanding like what the kind of like the trip the trip wires or the sore spots are within our evolved relationship psychology, because then they can be managed around and negotiated. So like by analogy, humans have evolved to eat meat because meat's a really good source of nutrition. So we've like very clearly evolved to eat meat. But I've been a vegetarian for over a decade. So clearly there are you know options where you can do the things you haven't evolved to do, but you're going to have to be conscious of the fact of like, oh, well, I still need certain nutrients and like a steak is still going to smell really, really good for me to me. So like I'm going to need some ways of managing those things. So I think within a relationship, I think jealousy is going to be a big part of it. I know you guys sometimes talk about jealousy. I think the way to understand jealousy is not as a bug in the system as, you know, this kind of like annoying bug that now like gets in the way of all of our non-monogamous dreams. I think jealousy is a feature of the system. Jealousy, jealousy evolved for good reason. You know, it makes sense that if you are relying on another person to be your co-parent for years and years and decades and decades, you would want to monopolize that resource and kind of defend it from other people, right? You don't Mm. want other people taking those resources from your partner that should be going to you. You don't want other people occupying your partner's womb when, when you were assuming you were going to get to use it and you've been, you know, investing in those offspring, right? Like sort of this sense of uh, protecting resources is totally a feature of the system. Um, and that's kind of what jealousy evolved to do. It evolved to protect these like valued social resources. So I think understanding that jealousy is going to be there and understanding what triggers jealousy. A partner having sex with someone else. Is it a partner giving gifts to someone else or having emotional intimacy uh, with someone else? I think, you know, if you're kind of, Effie, like you're saying, like designing a relationship, I think to some degree, those are like the rocks under the water that you're going to need to design around. And evolutionary psychology can help with that a little bit. Like what makes people jealous? It turns out that men are more sort of like possessive and jealous regarding their partner having sex with someone else. Women are more possessive and jealous regarding like emotional intimacy and cues that their partner's resources might be diverted to someone else. So those are, you know, that's what you have to design around. Those are, those are the challenges that should be anticipated and I think not resented, but appreciated. Like those are great things. Our, our mind is doing the right thing there. But now, you know, we live in the 21st century and just kind of want to do something else with it. Fine. That's great. But like those are the rocks under the water that I think you need to navigate around. Yeah. And yeah, that makes sense. So there's so much there. Yeah. 
So interesting. You know, there are many episodes that we do where I have to like re-listen to it to it for a few times or like sit with it. And this feels like one of those things where now I want to sit back and be like, okay, where, where am I leaning into default setting? Where am I making decisions to rewrite some of the code? The last thing actually that we want to do is explore some of our curiosity with you. And so we have four rapid fire questions that we want to ask you. So that before we leave this episode, we can learn a little bit more about what's going on in your head. You explain to us what's happening in all of our minds. Right, right. I want to understand a little bit more what's going on in yours. So the first question that we have for you is, what is one piece of advice that you would give to your younger self about love, sex, or relationships? It's a little bit of a hard question because I, to some degree, I feel like I'm pretty happy with where I am now. So I feel like don't, you know, don't change anything. Like don't, That's good advice. Don't Keep going. disrupt, yeah. you know, like just, <laughs> just stay that course because yeah. like it's good now. But I actually do think, you know, thinking back on some relationships I had earlier in my life, uh, romantic relationships, I, I, something that happened to me over and over is I had this feeling of like being trapped, trapped either by my own choices or trapped by the other person's choices. Oh my God, they just like moved across the country to be with me. Like now I'm obligated to stay with them or be nice to them or something like that. Or even just trapped by like what my notion of love and romance was at the time. Like I think I had an idea of martyrdom a little bit like baked into my concept of romance of like part of what it means to like love someone is, you know, you're a martyr to them and to the relationship. And looking back on it, I kind of just feel like, let's just chuck that, like, you know, just kind of get out of those relationships a little bit sooner. You know, I I think, yeah, this idea of like relationships involving martyrdom, I don't know if I want to get rid of entirely, right? We all make sacrifices for our partners. That's not a bad thing all the time. But that feeling of like, uh oh, like, I love someone and that means I can never break up with them, I kind of think is like, not not a particularly useful notion. So I, I would tell my younger self to just kind of like not not worry about that so much. Relationships end. That's fine. <laughs> yeah, no, that's good advice. Good advice for sure. Okay. What is one romantic or sexual adventure on your bucket list? Uh, you know, one of these days I would just really love to try sex. <laughs> Didn't get laid once or twice. <laughs> I'm glad you laughed. I'm glad. I'm glad you got the joke. Uh, I can hear your kids in the background. So <laughs> exactly. Oh yeah, do you hear them? Okay, good. That's, that's that was the clue. The, the joke, right? Yeah, that was the clue. Yeah, I don't know if I have a real answer to that. I don't know. I've just never been like a bucket list yeah, person. Enough. I don't know. I like it. Live in the moment. Do the thing. Yeah. I like it. Okay, so how do you challenge the status quo? For me, it's teaching, right? Because like I'm mm-hmm. a psychology professor, so I, I, I'm teaching lots of students in intro psych, in evolutionary psych, social psych, developmental psych. And I try to kind of teach them this like evolutionary way of looking at all these features of psychology and and ways of looking at their own lives. And, and, you know, like we talked about, like, it's not always the most intuitive way of looking at things. It's not our default to say, why do I like that person? We just like them and go with it. So I think my little mission is to get more people to think about themselves as evolved organisms and understand themselves that way. 
uh, and just kind of like take that out into the world with them wherever it goes. Uh, I just want them to kind of think that way more, um, which from my experience is, is definitely not the way people typically come into my classroom thinking. And to get all of us to stop asking about nature and nurture. Yes, there we go. <laughs> that, that that's it. I just want to kill that question. Yeah. yeah, that would be your your life lifelong achievement to get people to stop that. Yes, place. exactly. Okay, and um, what are you curious about lately? Oh, okay. Well, so since you can hear my mm-hmm. kid in the background, that that's that's a good segue. I mean, for me, it's like it's kind of parenthood and what that means in terms of my life, my my relationship with my wife. I, I kind of feel like that's sort of like the next chapter, you know, like I was single when I was younger. My wife and I were together for a long time before we had a kid. So I kind of feel like I I I know what those things are like. And now we have a kid. And that to me just feels a little bit like a new mm-hmm. frontier of romance and relationship and and family and just thinking about everything is a little bit different. And, you know, there's some loss in that, of course, but there's also a lot to be gained. You know, you lose some of the like spontaneity and stuff like that. But but there's a lot of like, you know, even just thinking about my, my relationship with my wife, there's also a lot of like intimacy uh, and appreciation that gets gained by kind of having everything in this context of parenting. So I'm just kind of curious about like what that chapter is going to be like, you know, how does, how does that play out? That just seems like the next, the next frontier in my life is being, you know, a husband, a lover, all these things, but also while being a dad. Uh, and, and I don't know exactly what's going to happen there. So I'm, I'm just kind of curious uh, to see where that goes. Nice. It's a cool adventure. Yeah. Having been yeah. in uh, a few a few feet ahead of you on the journey, it's a pretty yeah. cool adventure. Yeah. Yeah. So far, so good. Fascinating. <laughs> well, thank you so much. I appreciate you. Thank you. This was really fun. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, yeah it was so it was. much. It was great. That conversation could have gone on for at least another hour. At least I had so many questions. I was just going to say, I had twenty more questions to ask. Yeah. Yes, so many questions and every kind of bits of information. I had a a million branches (laughs) shooting off in all directions with a million questions that will shoot off into a million other questions. And, you know, and I love academics because they kind of have the answers, you know? Mm -hmm, Yeah. And actually, there was such a richness in conversation that we had to cut out some of the the back and forth and the Q&A and we put it on Patreon. So if you want more of this, you should go and check out Patreon in a little bit and we will be able to put some more information up there for you. In terms of takeaways, the thing, a few things stuck out for me. Number one is just recognizing, even in the way we were asking questions, how hard it is for us to believe that so much of what we want is actually a part of our source code in default settings. Because <laughs> we kept yes. being like, but what about this? But what yes. about that? <laughs> yes. I mean, yeah. I've been a believer on this for such a long time. I, you know, that we, we have source code conversations for, you know, we've been having source code conversations for a long time. And I've mm-hmm. been a huge believer, follower, learner, um, student of evolutionary psychology and, and it comes up in my you know in my coaching I explain to people some of this wiring you know like some how some of these decisions are actually affected by by their wiring mm-hmm. for a long long time and this conversation just made me an even more of a an mm-hmm. avid 
believer, learner, more curious about evolutionary psychology. So absolutely. Yeah. I think it it gives rationale explanation, even, you know, some permission in spaces to not be so hard on ourselves. I, I, you know, one of the things that stuck out for me was his example around jealousy and naming it as really our effort to try to retain our resources. Mm-hmm. And I never thought about it that way. And I'm like, oh, that mm-hmm. makes sense. That if we think that those resources of love, attention, finances, comfort, safety, all the things, if those things are limited, then I don't want that shared with somebody else because that means mm-hmm. I'm going to get less of it. So that makes sense then why I get so territorial. Mm-hmm. So I think that was helpful in terms of explanation. And I think it helps us then be mindful if we want to do something different, it doesn't mean that that default setting is the absolute predictor of our behavior. It means that if we, if we don't do anything else, we're going to default. And we have the possibility and ability to say, actually, I don't want to show up as jealous, or actually, I do want to be in multiple partnerships, or actually, I don't want to allow my hip to waste ratio (laughs) to to decide. Exactly. Exactly. As I'm swiping on Tinder, I don't want symmetry to be the thing that I'm, I'm most focused on that I think with this information, we have the ability then to, to be more mindful. Yes, exactly. And also, this evolution has been happening for over 6 million years. 6 million years ago, our lives look very, very different. So our modern lives is not in any way representation of our mm-hmm. evolutionary times. So I think what we think is what we, what we think we need to feel safe and feel loved and all those things come from you know a long, long time ago. Mm-hmm. So I think there is an opportunity for us to realize the difference between what we're wired for versus the life that we created today. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think my last takeaway is that nature versus nurture is a stupid question <laughs> to stop asking. <laughs> know, yeah. We have yeah, a, few, yeah. a few social scientists that we're going to be interviewing in the next few weeks. And so note to self, do not. Don't ask that question. <laughs> yeah. But I, I actually, I appreciated that, that he was like, yes, it is both, but it's not both. Like they exist in combination with each other. Yeah. Let's not separate them. With each other. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, that absolutely makes sense to me. I think going back to, you know, my, my takeaway is going back to what we we're saying that our, you know, modern life, uh, being so different, also not so much, right? The That even though fashion changes, the, the concept of beauty changes, we still go back to very primitive ways of thinking about what's attractive. Mm-hmm. And it's almost like we just call it by another name, but it is, mm. it is kind of the same. So that I thought was really interesting because in my mind, that was definitely something that kept coming up saying, I hear you. And then there's all these changes in what we, you know, the, the beauty standards, right? But not really. They kind of apparently are the same. And I want to, st- we, we need to fund this. I know we've talked about this before, but we <sighs> need to take up a fund, a collection, and then and pay scientists to study things outside of heteronormative, cis relationship oh, structures. Sure. Cause I would like to know what this means in terms of queer, in com- queer communities. And I would like to know what sure. this, what this, how this relates to non-monogamy and, you know, polycule. Like I want to know these things. Yes. So yeah. come on folks, let's figure out how to, how to make that happen. I think we should have put into our vision board a fund mm-hmm. that we make accessible to researchers yes. who is doing that stuff. So they can yes. apply for grants yes. and funding mm-hmm. and we can uh, we can provide that for the world. So I want to put that in our in our vision for the future for Curious Fox funded um, research for sure. Mm-hmm. The last bit for me is 
you know, I walk away wondering if it's worth challenging the default, if our joy lives in our choices that are aligned with our evolution, mm. right? We talk a lot about challenging the status quo here and challenging the defaults. And that is still instinctively, I think there's so much richness and growth and learning, learning that. And, you know, and now I also walk away curious, is that also where our joy is? Mm. Is there something about allowing our choices to align with their evolution, which will also get us to a place of joy and delight mm. and comfort? I hear that. I think I see it differently in that I think that evolution requires variation, right? Or we would all still be the single-celled organisms that mm. were floating around in the water and thinking about evolution in terms of health and like the safety of our, of, of procreation, right? That's why like incest mm -hmm. is so damaging because we actually need variation right. in the genes. And so I, right. I don't know, I think that maybe our survival and even our joy requires us to step off the prescribed path or even the evolutionary path every now and then. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, that that's my instinct, right? That's why we do mm -hmm. what we do. And that's why, you know, that's why here's this podcast. Here's the way we live our, choose to live our lives day to day. I think that is still remains as my instinct and I think that I, you know, what I find that in itself is where I find joy and, and interests and richness. And I walk away wondering, is it just going to be easier and more fun if I just went with the flow? You know, I feel like that's a recurring theme in our self-reflection is like, do things need to be as hard as I'm making them? I think that's really the question. Why exactly, is everything exactly. so difficult? Sounds like it doesn't right. need to be. Yeah, but we want to, you know, if you're trying to do something different, live creatively, live also really mindfully and thoughtfully. And, and I don't mean mm -hmm. that to say that folks who are in more traditional relationship constructs and stuff are not living thoughtfully and mindfully, but I'm sure there are so many ways and folks need to undo some of the thinking that they've had around race, around intersectionality, around mm -hmm. gender identity, beauty. around work, around mm -hmm. beauty. Right, exactly. That we all are unraveling and unpacking. Why do we do and mm -hmm. think the things that we do? And is there another mm -hmm. way of being? And so, mm -hmm. yeah, let's continue to be on that journey. More informed yes. now. More informed. Yes. But let's be yes. on the journey nonetheless. Yes. Yes. You can find out more about Adar Eisenbrook and review his recent publications by going onto his website, adareisenbrook.com. And while you're online, check us out on our website or on Instagram or on Facebook, all under the name We Are Curious Foxes. We are working to increase our reach and we need your help. So please share our podcast episodes with friends, rate the show, leave a comment, subscribe on Apple Podcasts or follow us on Spotify or Stitcher. And if you want to continue to indulge your curiosity, then join us on Patreon at We Are Curious Foxes, where you can find behind the scenes footage, mini episodes, over 50 videos of educator-led workshops, and some things that we had to cut from this episode and that we saved just for our Patreon members. Go on to Patreon at We Are Curious Foxes. And then let us know that you are listening. Share a comment, a story, or a question by emailing us or sending us a voice memo to listening at wearecuriousfoxes.com or you can record a question for the show by calling us at 201-870-0063. This episode is produced and edited by Nina Pollock, who has helped us evolve this podcast from recordings in Brooklyn basements to over 75,000 earbuds across the globe. Our intro music is composed by Dave Saha. We are so grateful for their work, and we're grateful to you for listening. As always, stay curious, friends. 
Curious Fox podcast is not and will never be the final word on any topic. We solely aim to encourage curiosity and provide a space for exploration through connection and story. We encourage you to listen with an open and curious mind and we'll look forward to your feedback. Stay curious, friends. Stay curious. 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 Stay curious.